Mosiah chapter 1. The book of Mosiah is what literary people call an omnibus. It has a few chapters about Mosiah, but it is mostly a whole collection of inspiring historical documents which might have gotten lost if Mormon the historian had not possessed such a capacity to weave together this magnificent tapestry of historical narratives. To remind ourselves where we are in the story of the Nephites, let us go back to a verse or two in the book of Omni, where a keeper of the record says, quote, I am a Malachi, born in the days of Mosiah, and I have lived to see his death. And Benjamin his son reigneth in his stead, unquote. The book of Omni is only one chapter long, and this is verse 23. Of course, the Mosiah he is talking about is Mosiah the first, who was commanded by the Lord to lead a righteous remnant of Nephites out of the land of Nephi and travel north until they discovered the people of Zarahemla. The Nephites were welcomed into the land of Zarahemla, and Mosiah was elected king over both people. He taught the people of Zarahemla the Hebrew language so they could communicate together. He also converted them away from atheism by teaching them the highlights of the brass plates or the plates of Laban. It was this same Mosiah who suddenly came into possession of the Urim and Thummim. These sacred stones had belonged to the Jaredites for 1,300 years, but recently the Jaredites had become extinct and the Urim and Thummim were somehow transferred to Mosiah. I wish we knew how Mosiah received them, but all we have is the assurance from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 17, verse 1, that the interpreters Messiah received were those originally given to the Jaredites. When Mosiah died, his son Benjamin became the new king, and when Amalekai, the record keeper, was about to die, he had no children. And so he turned the record-keeping task over to King Benjamin as well. The early years of King Benjamin's reign were very tempestuous. The Lamanites had somehow discovered a way across the rugged mountain strip of wilderness and had attacked the Nephites and the people of Zarahemla. King Benjamin launched a great spiritual reform among his own people and then launched a mighty attack on the Lamanites and drove them back to their own land. Benjamin then spent the rest of his reign in peace and prosperity. By this time that we're speaking of, he had three sons, and one of them was named Mosiah after his grandfather. He is the Mosiah after whom this book was named. Now Mormon continues the story. And now there was no more contention in all the land of Zarahemla among all the people who belonged to King Benjamin so that King Benjamin had continual peace all the remainder of his days. And it came to pass that he had three sons, and he called their names Mosiah, and Helorim, and Helaman. And he caused that they should be taught in all the language of his fathers, that thereby they might become men of understanding, and that they might know concerning the prophecies which had been spoken by the mouths of their fathers, which were delivered them by the hand of the Lord. Here we are clear down to 124 B.C., 
and the Nephite leaders are still continually stressing the importance of learning the Egyptian language so they can study the brass plates. And he also taught them concerning the records which were engraven on the plates of brass, saying, My sons, I would that ye should remember that were it not for these plates, which contain these records and these commandments, we must have suffered in ignorance, even at this present time, not knowing the mysteries of God. For it were not possible that our father Lehi could have remembered all these things, to have taught them to his children, except it were for the help of these plates. For he, having been taught in the language of the Egyptians, therefore he could read these engravings, and teach them to his children, that thereby they could teach them to their children, and so fulfilling the commandments of God, even down to this present time. I say unto you, my sons, were it not for these things which have been kept, and preserved by the hand of God, that we might read and understand of his mysteries, and have his commandments always before our eyes, that even our fathers would have dwindled in unbelief, and we should have been like unto our brethren the Lamanites, who know nothing concerning these things, or even do not believe them when they are taught them, because of the traditions of their fathers which are not correct. Now King Benjamin bears his testimony concerning the sacred treasury contained in the Nephite library of Scripture. O my sons, I would that ye should remember that these sayings are true, and also that these records are true. And behold, also the plates of Nephi, which contain the records and the sayings of our fathers from the time they left Jerusalem until now, and they are true and we can know of their surety because we have them before our eyes. And now, my sons, I would that ye should remember to search them diligently, that ye may profit thereby. And I would that ye should keep the commandments of God, that ye may prosper in the land according to the promises which the Lord made unto our fathers. And many more things did King Benjamin teach his sons, which are not written in this book. By this time, King Benjamin is feeling the afflictions of old age creeping upon him. Not only is his aged frame trembling with weakness, but we learn from verse 30 of the next chapter that God has commanded him to retire and turn the kingdom over to his son, Mosiah. All of this has some tremendous implications, which we will discuss shortly. And it came to pass that after King Benjamin had made an end of teaching his sons, that he waxed old, and he saw that he must very soon go the way of all the earth. Therefore he thought it expedient that he should confer the kingdom upon one of his sons. Therefore he had Mosiah brought before him, and these are the words which he spake unto him, saying, My son, I would that ye should make a proclamation throughout all this land among all this people, or the people of Zarahemla and the people of Mosiah who dwell in the land, that thereby they may be gathered together. For on the morrow I shall proclaim unto this my people, out of mine own mouth, that thou art a king and a ruler over this people, whom the Lord our God hath given us. So King Benjamin wants his son to call the people into a special conference 
where he will do several things. First of all, he will tell them that the Lord has commanded him to turn the kingdom over to Messiah. Now, King Benjamin states that the second thing he will do at this conference will be to give this people a wonderful new name which they must never forget. And moreover, I shall give this people a name, that thereby they may be distinguished above all the people which the Lord God hath brought out of the land of Jerusalem. And this I do because they have been a diligent people in keeping the commandments of the Lord. And I give unto them a name that never shall be blotted out, except it be through transgression. Now it will be clear over in Mosiah 5 and 8 that we learn that the new name which the people will be known hereafter is the name of Christ. And we mention it now so that we can better understand why it is so important to retain this name. All of the great nations of the world had lost this name, including the Jews. Even without mentioning this wonderful name, King Benjamin issues this warning. Yea, and moreover I say unto you, that if this highly favored people of the Lord should fall into transgression and become a wicked and an adulterous people, that the Lord will deliver them up, that thereby they become weak like unto their brethren, and he will no more preserve them by his matchless and marvelous power, as he has hitherto preserved our fathers. For I say unto you, that if he had not extended his arm in the preservation of our fathers, they must have fallen into the hands of the Lamanites and become victims to their hatred. Now King Benjamin did a most unusual thing. And it came to pass that after King Benjamin had made an end of these sayings to his son, that he gave him charge concerning all the affairs of the kingdom. Of course it was the custom of the Nephites to present the name of a newly proposed king to the people for their sustaining vote before the new ruler took over his duties. But no doubt King Benjamin felt confident the people would automatically accept Mosiah with their sustaining vote when they learned that he had been nominated by the Lord through direct revelation. And moreover, he also gave him charge concerning the records which were engraven on the plates of brass, and also the plates of Nephi, and also the sword of Laban and the ball or director, which led our fathers through the wilderness, which was prepared by the hand of the Lord, that thereby they might be led, every one according to the heed and diligence which they gave unto him. Having mentioned the ball or director which was given to Lehi, King Benjamin feels he should point out that this Liahona instrument only functioned under certain conditions. He says, Therefore, as they were unfaithful, they did not prosper nor progress in their journey, but were driven back and incurred the displeasure of God upon them. And therefore they were smitten with famine and sore afflictions, to stir them up in remembrance of their duty. We have no indication of how Mosiah reacted to the announcement that he was to be the new king over the people. Of course, as he saw his father weakening with age, he may have assumed that he would receive this high honor since he was the oldest son. In any event, he hurried away to carry out his father's instructions. And now it came to pass that Mosiah went and did as his father had commanded him and proclaimed unto all the people who were in the land of Zarahemla, that thereby they might gather themselves together to go up to the temple, 
to hear the words which his father should speak unto them. Mosiah chapter 2 Throughout the Book of Mormon we have only hints as to the extent of the population with which we are dealing. The fact that Mosiah would send out messengers to gather the people together at the temple suggests a somewhat limited population concentrated fairly close to the city of Zarahemla. Later on, however, we have references to distant cities which suggest that a conference may have only included the main body of the people near Zarahemla, just as church conferences in pioneer days drew most of the attendants from the Wasatch Front. And it came to pass that after Mosiah had done as his father had commanded him, and had made a proclamation throughout all the land, that the people gathered themselves together throughout all the land, that they might go up to the temple to hear the words which King Benjamin should speak unto them. The fact that the people with their families camped around the temple tells us that they had constructed a temple in Zarahemla similar to the one which Nephi had built in the land of Nephi. We also remind ourselves that these temples were not large and only sacred ceremonies were performed by the priests inside the temple. Meetings were held outside the temples in, quote, courtyards, unquote. But in this case where each family set up a separate tent, it must have spread over a large area of what we might call a temple square. And there were a great number, even so many that they did not number them, for they had multiplied exceedingly and waxed great in the land. And they also took of the firstlings of their flocks, that they might offer sacrifice and burnt offerings according to the law of Moses. The people must have realized that this was not merely a business conference, but a time for sacrifices and covenant-making. And also that they might give thanks to the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Jerusalem, and who had delivered them out of the hands of their enemies, and had appointed just men to be their teachers, and also a just man to be their king, who had established peace in the land of Zarahemla, and who had taught them to keep the commandments of God, that they might rejoice and be filled with love towards God and all men. It is significant that this was almost like a great Thanksgiving conference. Notice how thankful they were that their ancestors had escaped from the destruction of Jerusalem around 476 years earlier. They were also very thankful that Benjamin, when he was still their young warrior king, had succeeded in driving out the Lamanites when they made their first excursion across the narrow strip of wilderness and invaded the great Sidon Valley where Zarahemla was located. They were thankful for righteous men to teach them the gospel principles and grateful for a king who was one of the most just and exemplary rulers in ancient history. He taught them to honor the law of Moses and love one another. And now we get a description of the way the tents of the huge audience were arranged around the temple. And it came to pass that when they came up to the temple, they pitched their tents round about, every man according to his family, consisting of his wife and his sons and his daughters, and their sons and their daughters from the eldest down to the youngest, every family being separate one from another. And they pitched their tents round about the temple, every man having his tent with the door thereof towards the temple, 
that thereby they might remain in their tents, and hear the words which King Benjamin should speak unto them. For the multitude, being so great, that King Benjamin could not teach them all within the walls of the temple, therefore he caused a tower to be erected, that thereby his people might hear the words which he should speak unto them. And it came to pass that he began to speak to his people from the tower, and they could not all hear his words because of the greatness of the multitude. Therefore he caused that the words which he spake should be written, and sent forth among those that were not under the sound of his voice, that they might also receive his words. The crowd spilled out beyond the walls of their temple square, and so King Benjamin had a high tower built in hopes the people could hear him better. But that was impossible. So he had his words written down and distributed among the people where the parents of each family could read them aloud. Mormon wisely included a copy of the speech in his history so we can read it as well. And these are the words which he spake and caused to be written, saying, My brethren, all ye that have assembled yourselves together, you that can hear my words which I shall speak unto you this day, for I have not commanded you to come up hither to trifle with the words which I shall speak, but that you should hearken unto me, and open your ears that ye may hear, and your hearts that ye may understand, and your minds that the mysteries of God may be unfolded to your view. The aged King Benjamin was in a very serious mood. He didn't want them to trifle with his words. He wanted them to open their ears and their hearts so they could understand the mysteries of God he intended to cover in this address. I have not commanded you to come up hither, that ye should fear me, or that ye should think that I of myself am more than a mortal man. But I am like as yourselves, subject to all manner of infirmities in body and mind. Yet I have been chosen by this people, and consecrated by my Father, and was suffered by the hand of the Lord, that I should be a ruler and a king over this people and have been kept and preserved by his matchless power to serve you with all the might, mind, and strength which the Lord hath granted unto me. Notice that the first mystery King Benjamin wished to deal with was the frenzied hero worship that the people tended to bestow upon their leaders. Love and support of a leader is appreciated, but hero worship is a sin. There was nothing supernatural about this king. He was a frail and ordinary human being like themselves who had just tried to serve the people to the best of his ability. Then he began to itemize the specific things he had tried to accomplish for this people. Modern politicians might carefully note what he said. I say unto you that as I have been suffered to spend my days in your service, even up to this time, and have not sought gold, nor silver, nor any manner of riches of you. First of all, he had not made himself rich while serving in his high office. Neither have I suffered that ye should be confined in dungeons, nor that ye should make slaves one of another, nor that ye should murder, or plunder, or steal, or commit adultery, 
nor even have I suffered that ye should commit any manner of wickedness, and have taught you that ye should keep the commandments of the Lord in all things which he hath commanded you. This is an amazing list of crimes he had not allowed to fester in this society. But how do you keep such crimes suppressed? King Benjamin had learned how to do it. You simply enforce the law. Every offense is taken seriously and dealt with as the law required. In other words, King Benjamin had a zero tolerance for crime in any form of wickedness which resulted in the abuse of others. And even I myself have labored with mine own hands that I might serve you, and that ye should not be laden with taxes, and that there should nothing come upon you which was grievous to be borne. And of all these things which I have spoken, ye yourselves are witnesses this day. Now this verse borders on the miraculous. Where else in all history do you find a king who earned his own living so his personal upkeep would not have to be paid for by taxes imposed upon the people? Yet, my brethren, I have not done these things that I might boast. Neither do I tell these things that thereby I might accuse you, but I tell you these things that ye may know that I can answer a clear conscience before God this day. Behold, I say unto you, that because I said unto you that I had spent my days in your service, I do not desire to boast, for I have only been in the service of God. And behold, I tell you these things, that ye may learn wisdom, that ye may learn that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, Ye are only in the service of your God. Behold, ye have called me your king. And if I, whom ye call your king, do labor to serve you, then ought not ye to labor to serve one another? King Benjamin wanted to demonstrate a new lifestyle for rulers. He wasn't trying to show off or boast of his service to the people. He just wanted them to realize that a call to service in any capacity is a call to serve God and should be treated accordingly. It is interesting that the American founding fathers understood this principle and tried to encourage a similar lifestyle under their inspired constitution. Washington declined any salary while serving as commander-in-chief and even though the war had ruined his plantation, he somehow managed to survive without taking any of the salary provided for in the Constitution as president. Here is how Franklin explained this remarkable ideal of the founders to a friend in Europe. Quote, in America, salaries for public service, where indispensable, are extremely low, and much public business is done gratis or for nothing. The honor of serving the public ably and faithfully is deemed sufficient. Public spirit in America exists there and has great effects, unquote. This is taken from the writings of Benjamin Franklin in volume 7, page 4. Franklin pointed out that the office of high sheriff in each county of England is filled with public servants who receive no compensation. Nevertheless, these offices are accepted as a call to public service and are executed with great diligence. Franklin concluded, quote, I only cite these examples to show that the pleasure of doing good and serving one's country 
are sufficient motives with some minds to give up a great portion of their time to the public, unquote. And that's from the writings of Benjamin Franklin, volume 9, pages 593 and 4. In our own day, it is in this same spirit that 23,000 bishops of the LDS Church and 60,000 missionaries serve without compensation. Now King Benjamin wants to emphasize how indebted every human being is to God. And behold also, if I, whom ye call your king, who has spent his days in your service, and yet has been in the service of God, do merit any thanks from you, Oh, how you ought to thank your heavenly King! I say unto you, my brethren, that if you should render all the thanks and praise which your whole soul has power to possess to that God who has created you, and has kept and preserved you, and has caused that ye should rejoice, and has granted that ye should live in peace one with another, I say unto you, that if ye should serve him who has created you from the beginning, and is preserving you from day to day, by lending you breath, that ye may live and move and do according to your own will, and even supporting you from one moment to another, I say, if ye should serve him with all your whole souls, yet ye would be unprofitable servants. And behold, all that he requires of you is to keep his commandments. And he has promised you that if ye would keep his commandments, ye should prosper in the land. And he never doth vary from that which he hath said. Therefore, if ye do keep his commandments, he doth bless you and prosper you. The marvelous thing about serving God is that he requires just a few simple things from those who love him. King Benjamin next underscores the fact that mankind can never get out from under their indebtedness to God. And now, in the first place, he hath created you, and granted unto you your lives, for which ye are indebted unto him. And secondly, he doth require that ye should do as he hath commanded you, for which, if ye do, he doth immediately bless you, and therefore he hath paid you, and ye are still indebted unto him, and are and will be forever and ever. Therefore, of what have ye to boast? Now I ask, can ye say aught of yourselves? I answer you, nay. Ye cannot say that ye are even as much as the dust of the earth, yet ye were created of the dust of the earth. But behold, it belongeth to him who created you, and I, even I, whom ye call your king, am no better than ye yourselves are, for I am also of the dust, and ye behold that I am old, and am about to yield up this mortal frame to its mother earth. King Benjamin points out that we are made of the dust of the earth, but even that belongs to God. The king knows that his own frail body has served him well, but is now about to return to the earth from which it came. Therefore, as I said unto you that I had served you, walking with a clear conscience before God, even so I at this time have caused that ye should assemble yourselves together, 
that I might be found blameless, and that your blood should not come upon me, when I shall stand to be judged of God, of the things whereof he hath commanded me concerning you. I say unto you, that I have caused that ye should assemble yourselves together, that I might rid my garments of your blood, at this period of time when I am about to go down to my grave, that I might go down in peace, and my immortal spirit may join the choirs above in singing the praises of a just God. Now King Benjamin is about to make his official announcement concerning the change in the administration which must now take place. And moreover I say unto you that I have caused that ye should assemble yourselves together, that I might declare unto you that I can no longer be your teacher nor your king. For even at this time my whole frame doth tremble exceedingly while attempting to speak unto you. But the Lord God doth support me, and hath suffered me that I should speak unto you, and hath commanded me that I should declare unto you this day that my son Mosiah is a king and a ruler over you. It must have come as quite a surprise to this huge audience to have the king suddenly announce that he has received a revelation, and God has commanded that he now be replaced by his eldest son, Mosiah. And now, my brethren, I would that ye should do as ye have hitherto done. As ye have kept my commandments, and also the commandments of my father, and have prospered, and have been kept from falling into the hands of your enemies, even so if ye shall keep the commandments of my Son, or the commandments of God which shall be delivered unto you by him, ye shall prosper in the land, and your enemies shall have no power over you. Now King Benjamin makes a special plea to his people. He knows that there is always a great danger when a new regime takes over that some restless souls may take it upon themselves to covet the throne and spread contention among the people on their behalf. Benjamin wants the people to know that God has selected the new king and any contention against him will be from the devil. But, O oh, my people, beware, lest there shall arise contentions among you and ye list to obey the evil spirit, which was spoken of by my father Mosiah. For behold, there is a woe pronounced upon him who listeth to obey that spirit, for if he listeth to obey him, and remaineth and dieth in his sins, the same drinketh damnation to his own soul. For he receiveth for his wages an everlasting punishment, having transgressed the law of God contrary to his own knowledge. King Benjamin urges the people to remember how dependent they are on their heavenly Father. He wants them to search the Scriptures so they will remember what the Lord has prophesied concerning those who rebel and ignore his commandments. I say unto you that there are not any among you except it be your little children that have not been taught concerning these things but what knoweth that ye are eternally indebted to your heavenly Father, to render to him all that you have and are, and also have been taught concerning the records which contain the prophecies which have been spoken by the holy prophets, 
even down to the time our father Lehi left Jerusalem, and also all that has been spoken by our fathers until now. And behold also, they spake that which was commanded them of the Lord, therefore they are just and true. And now I say unto you, my brethren, that after ye have known and have been taught all these things, if ye should transgress and go contrary to that which has been spoken, that ye do withdraw yourselves from the Spirit of the Lord, that it may have no place in you to guide you in wisdom's paths, that ye may be blessed, prospered, and preserved. I say unto you, that the man that doeth this, the same cometh out in open rebellion against God. Therefore he listeth to obey the evil spirit, and becometh an enemy to all righteousness. Therefore the Lord has no place in him, for he dwelleth not in unholy temples. The aged king wants the people to remember that there is a severe penalty awaiting those who apostatize and die in their sins. Therefore if that man repenteth not, and remaineth and dieth an enemy to God, the demands of divine justice do awaken his immortal soul to a lively sense of his own guilt, which doth cause him to shrink from the presence of the Lord, and doth fill his breast with guilt and pain and anguish, which is like an unquenchable fire, whose flame ascendeth up forever and ever. And now I say unto you that mercy hath no claim on that man. Therefore his final doom is to endure a never-ending torment. Of course, as we have pointed out earlier, the never-ending torment is eternally available to punish the wicked, but it only must be endured until such unrepentant sinners have paid the uttermost farthing for his or her individual sins. So King Benjamin makes his final plea before we go into the next chapter when he deals with the coming of Christ and the atonement. O all ye old men, and also ye young men, and you little children who can understand my words, for I have spoken plainly unto you that ye might understand, I pray that ye should awake to a remembrance of the awful situation of those that have fallen into transgression. And moreover I would desire that ye should consider on the blessed and happy state of those who keep the commandments of God. For behold, they are blessed in all things, both temporal and spiritual. And if they hold out faithful to the end, they are received into heaven, that thereby they may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. Oh, remember, remember that these things are true, for the Lord God hath spoken it. Mosiah chapter 3 King Benjamin had now fulfilled the commandment of the Lord to announce that his son Mosiah would be the new king. Therefore, the political aspects of his high office had been completed. Now he needs to turn to his role as a prophet of God. He introduced this phase of his talk by telling the people that he wanted to talk about things which were to come. He also wants to explain how he learned of these things. And again, my brethren, 
I would call your attention, for I have somewhat more to speak unto you, for behold, I have things to tell you concerning that which is to come. And the things which I shall tell you are made known unto me by an angel from God. And he said unto me, Awake! And I awoke, and behold, he stood before me. And he said unto me, Awake, and hear the words which I shall tell thee. For behold, I am come to declare unto you the glad tidings of great joy. This beautiful proclamation of, quote, glad tidings of great joy, unquote, appears eleven times in the Book of Mormon, and it always refers to the coming of the Savior. King Benjamin had been praying to know more about this great event, and so the angel told him, For the Lord hath heard thy prayers, and hath judged of thy righteousness, and hath sent me to declare unto thee that thou mayest rejoice and that thou mayest declare unto thy people that they may also be filled with joy. For behold, the time cometh and is not far distant, that with power the Lord Omnipotent who reigneth, who was and is from all eternity to all eternity, shall come down from heaven among the children of men, and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay, and shall go forth amongst men working mighty miracles, such as healing the sick, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, the blind to receive their sight, and the deaf to hear, and curing all manner of diseases. Notice that Jesus, the very Redeemer of mankind, would appear among the children of men with a physical body of clay. We know that our own bodies are made of clay, but it is amazing to have the angels say the body of the Savior would be identical with our own and be made of common clay. When we look at the marvelous composition of the human body, the face, the hands, the vast network of nerves, bones, muscles, and organs, it is virtually incomprehensible to think of all of this being made out of dirt. It is truly a miracle of God that the body of Jesus Christ will not be any different. And he shall cast out devils, or the evil spirits which dwell in the hearts of the children of men. Consider the marvelous powers Jesus will exercise as he moves out among the people. But the angel wanted King Benjamin to know that Jesus would be tested to the limit during his earthly life. No human being would be called upon to suffer as Jesus would suffer during his ministry among men. Up to this time, the angel has referred to the Savior as the Lord Omnipotent, but now he reveals the name which will be given him, and the angel also reveals the name of his mother. And lo, he shall suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. For behold, blood cometh from every pore, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and the abominations of his people. And he shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth, the Creator of all things from the beginning and his mother shall be called Mary.
Jesus is the Greek for the Hebrew name of Joshua, and it means, quote, Jehovah is our salvation. This is found in Adam Clark's Bible Commentary, Volume 2, page 3. Christ, however, is not a name but a title. It means, quote, the anointed one, unquote. The name of Mary is the Greek for the Hebrew name of Miriam, and that may be found in the Hastings Bible Dictionary under Mary. This was a very popular name among the Jews, probably because the prophets had said that this would be the name of the mother of the Lord. It is not only mentioned in this verse, but also in Alma chapter 7, verse 10. Now the angel speaks of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And lo, he cometh unto his own, that salvation might come unto the children of men, even through faith on his name. And even after all this, they shall consider him a man, and say that he hath a devil, and shall scourge him, and shall crucify him. And he shall rise the third day from the dead. And behold, he standeth to judge the world. And behold, all these things are done, that a righteous judgment might come upon the children of men. Now the angel pointed out that there was one rule for people who have never heard the gospel, and a different rule for those who knew of the gospel principles but sinned against the light. For behold, and also his blood atoneth for the sins of those who have fallen by the transgression of Adam, who have died not knowing the will of God concerning them, or who have ignorantly sinned. But woe, woe unto him who knoweth that he rebelleth against God, for salvation cometh to none such, except it be through repentance and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. The angel then said the reason the Lord sends prophets out among the people is so that they might repent of their sins and receive the blessings of the gospel. And the Lord God hath sent his holy prophets among all the children of men to declare these things to every kindred, nation, and tongue, that thereby whosoever should believe that Christ should come, the same might receive remission of their sins and rejoice with exceeding great joy, even as though he had already come among them. Notice that the atonement of the Savior is retroactive. Once Jesus had accepted the calling in the spirit world of agreeing to provide for an atonement, it went into effect immediately, although the crucifixion would not come until the meridian of time. Based on this principle, the sins of believer were forgiven from Adam on down. Yet the Lord God saw that his people were a stiff-necked people, and he appointed unto them a law, even the law of Moses. However, the people became so wicked in the days of Moses that they worshipped a golden calf, and God imposed on them the law of Moses, which was a kindergarten method of teaching them obedience. And many signs and wonders and types and shadows showed he unto them concerning his coming. And also holy prophets spake unto them concerning his coming, and yet they hardened their hearts and understood not that the law of Moses availeth nothing, 
except it were through the atonement of his blood. But the law of Moses still would not save them. All the law of Moses did was to help them qualify for its benefits. It was not by any means a substitute as some of the Israelites began to believe. And even if it were possible that little children could sin, they could not be saved. But I say unto you, they are blessed. For behold, as in Adam, or by nature they fall, even so the blood of Christ atoneth for their sins. The angel said that if it were not for the atonement, it would have meant that even innocent little children would have been damned and lost forever. Of course, since the Father is all-powerful, why couldn't he just go ahead and save us on his own? As we get into the book of Alma, we discovered that if he had tried to go forward without the atonement, he would actually, quote, cease to be God, period, unquote. Later on, we will discover why this is so. And moreover, I say unto you, that there shall be no other name given, nor any other way, nor means, whereby salvation can come unto the children of men, only in and through the name of Christ, the Lord Omnipotent. Meanwhile, it is sufficient for us to know that only Jesus Christ was in a position to provide the miraculous redemption, and because he did it, we are told this is the only name whereby we can be saved. For behold, he judgeth, and his judgment is just, and the infant perisheth not that dieth in his infancy. But men drink damnation to their own souls, except they humble themselves and become as little children, and believe that salvation was and is and is to come in and through the atoning blood of Christ, the Lord Omnipotent. So the atonement does save innocent little children, but it will not save those who are above eight years of age unless they repent and become as humble and submissive as little children. This means they must not only repent, but enter into a covenant with God to obey his commandments. In the next verse, he explains why this is so. For the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam, and will be forever and ever, unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, and putteth off the natural man, and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord, and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father. We should mention that the natural man is an enemy to God only because the survival instincts, which are part of our human nature, operate in a selfish, grasping, belligerent way until they are tempered by the Spirit of God. And moreover I say unto you, that the time shall come when the knowledge of the Savior shall spread throughout every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And behold, when that time cometh, none shall be found blameless before God, except it be little children, only through repentance and faith on the name of the Lord God omnipotent. And even at this time, when thou shalt have taught thy people the things which the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, 
even then are they found no more blameless in the sight of God, only according to the words which I have spoken unto thee. It is interesting that after everyone has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, none can escape the judgment of God, for those who reject the gospel will have sinned against the light. Only little children will be saved because they are not considered capable of being accountable for their mistakes until after they reach the age of eight. This doctrine is explained in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, verses 70 and 71. Now King Benjamin has delivered the message given to him by the angel, and he wants his listeners to know that they will be held accountable for these words at the day of judgment. And now I have spoken the words which the Lord God hath commanded me, and thus saith the Lord, They shall stand as a bright testimony against this people at the judgment day, whereof they shall be judged every man according to his works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And if they be evil, they are consigned to an awful view of their own guilt and abominations, which doth cause them to shrink from the presence of the Lord into a state of misery and endless torment, from whence they can no more return. Therefore they have drunk damnation to their own souls. Therefore they have drunk out of the cup of the wrath of God, which justice could no more deny unto them than it could deny that Adam should fall because of his partaking of the forbidden fruit. Therefore mercy could have claim on them no more forever, and their torment is as a lake of fire and brimstone whose flames are unquenchable and whose smoke ascendeth up forever and ever. Thus hath the Lord commanded me. Amen. Unless the people repent, the Savior is not allowed to deny the demands of justice. This means that the individual will be reduced to the next layer of separation from the Father, where the Spirit itself begins to feel the most terrible, agonizing pain, like the torment of a lake of fire and brimstone. Jesus described how terrible this experience will be in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 19, verses 17 to 18. And the Spirit remains in this state of suffering until all of the intelligences in our part of the universe and all of the victims of his or her evil deeds are satisfied to the uttermost farthing. Only then is the sinner released and considered redeemed from his or her sins. This doctrine of the redemption of the wicked is explained in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, verses 36 to 38. It seems highly significant that after all this suffering, the Lord describes the wicked as, quote, redeemed, unquote. This would imply a total cleansing of that person's sins, so that he or she would then be available to serve the Lord in the lowest of God's kingdoms. By rejecting the gospel in both their earth life and later in the spirit world, such individuals have forfeited any possibility of enjoying a place in the upper two kingdoms, that is, the celestial or terrestrial kingdoms. Concerning those who go to the telestial or lowest kingdom, the Lord says, quote, And they shall be servants of the Most High God, but where God and Christ dwell they cannot come, 
worlds without end, unquote. This is in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, verses 112. If you liked this podcast and would like more materials by W. Cleon Skousen, you can find his other books and recordings at skousenlibrary.com or at your local LDS bookstore.